little bit of a shift here. Jesus has gone from uh, 10 and 11. Jesus is really focused on sending out his 12 for ministry, for this missionary work. Chapter 12, there's this open controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders. There's been this friction between them for a while, and now it's a much more open controversy. We're going to look today at two arguments and an explanation. Before we do, I have some pictures. I want you to tell me who these people are. Can we see the... Who's that? Perfect. Mark Zuckerberg, he's a Facebook guy. Mr. Bean. Bill O'Reilly. Samuel Jackson. Anybody know him? Messi. Two people know soccer. That's Messi. Angelina Jolie. <laughs> I don't know who this is. I put him up hoping y'all could. Who? I have, there's seven answers. Who is that? Sarkozy? Seriously? We're cutting him out at 11. So, these are caricatures. You know what those are. So you take, you exaggerate uh, the peculiarities of a person. That's what a caricature is. It's when you take somebody and then you exaggerate, you distort things that are true about them. We're going to come back to that in a minute. This is Matthew 12, starting in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. If you remember at the end of last week, we talked about this idea of the yoke, the yoke of Jesus. He said it's easy and his burden is light. We said yoke is uh, it's his teaching, it's his instructions for life. And he's comparing his with that of the religious leaders. In Matthew 23, 4, he says the yoke of the religious leaders, he says it's heavy. They pile heavy burdens on men's backs and don't lift a finger to help them. And you see a picture of that. Here, to be clear, the disciples did break the law. They were not stealing. Uh, in the Old Testament law, it was fine if you were hungry and you were walking past a field, it was fine to pull grain with your hands to eat it. You couldn't use a sickle, you couldn't reap it, but you could pull grain and you could eat it. That was perfectly fine. But what they were doing was they were breaking the Sabbath. For a Jew, the three most important duties were circumcision, the dietary laws, and keeping the Sabbath. And their understanding of honoring the Sabbath meant no work at all. And they created, the rabbis over time listed 39 different activities. Here's a list of them. 39 different activities that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And then within each of those activities, they broke them down even more specifically. The disciples were reaping, apparently, by pulling the grain off with their hands. They were winnowing because they were separate. They were um, rubbing the grain between their hands and they were threshing because they were separating the chaff. This is I narrowed this down. This is 10 pages, I'm not going to read it to you, of um, a current understanding of these 39 rules. And I've cut out a lot. Again, I'm not going to read it to you, but just so you get an idea of what goes on with keeping the Sabbath. You can't carry a purse, a pocketbook, a wallet, or a keychain outside 
because that's carrying. So you're not allowed to carry anything that you're not wearing, wearing outside. This thing about no burning, well, when you start a car, there's burning involved, so you can't drive. When you turn on a light, it heats up the metal. That's considered burning, so you can't turn on a light on the Sabbath. You also, extinguishing, you can't turn off a light if it's already on because you're extinguishing on the Sabbath. This idea of finishing, that's very complicated, but one of the specific things you can't do is you can't blow up a balloon because you're finishing it in some ways. Erasing, if you have a package, you can tear it, but you can't tear the letters because then you're erasing the writing on the package. You can't boil water. This idea of sewing, or wait, hold on. Yeah, this idea of sewing, they kind of expanded that. Um, you can't seal an envelope or put a stamp on an envelope on the Sabbath. That's considered work. Planting, you can't water your plants. Reaping, you're not allowed to climb a tree or smell a growing flower. And there's reasons behind all of this. The idea of dying, no lipstick and no eyeshadow unless you put it on the day before. It's true. Slaughtering, you can't swat a gnat or kill a mosquito. Can you imagine being in the South and having to go all Saturday without being able to kill a mosquito? Those are the type, and that's just highlights, not being disrespectful at all. But that's the type of burdens that these guys were under, and I didn't give you all of it. And it's this heavy weight that the Old Testament, that the Jews of Jesus' day were living under. They were burdened with this Sabbath kinky. If you can imagine, just trying to remember those 39 things, much less all of the subcategories. You might as well just lay in your bed all day because you're, you're going to mess up. You're going to mess up at some point. And there's some exceptions and whatnot, but in general, in order to honor the Sabbath, these are the things that you don't do. And there's a handful of things that you are allowed to do. So what Jesus did was he broke the Sabbath. His, his disciples, they did that. And he does not deny that. And then he quotes two, or gives two Old Testament examples of a time when the law was broken and there were no negative repercussions. The guys didn't get struck by lightning or anything like that. One was um, from 1 Samuel 21. David and a few guys are fleeing from Saul. Saul has decided, I'm going to kill David. So David is running away, and they're hungry. And so they stop at um, a temple. There's a guy named Elimelech. He's the priest. David says, give me some food. He says, all I've got is this consecrated bread and only priests are allowed to eat it. David is not a priest. And he says, we'll take it. And so he eats that bread and nothing bad happens to him at all. The second is this idea that the priests work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday for the Jews. And in order to keep the temple running, there was work that they were commanded to do by God. They had to do some stuff with bread. They had to make certain offerings. And Jesus says, see, that's another case where there's the Sabbath is broken or where Old Testament laws are broken and there's no negative repercussions. And then Jesus kind of peels back and he says, it was okay for David's guys to eat this bread that they were not allowed to eat. It was okay for them to break a rule. Mercy versus sacrifice. That's what God's looking for. It's, it's heart here. It's not letter of the law. Honestly, God is not overly concerned with whether you put a stamp on an envelope or not. What he's concerned about is the heart behind rest and restoration. Is that what's going on here? One greater than the temple. If you can suspend the law, if the law can be broken in the service of the temple, well, I'm greater than the temple, so I can decide how to keep the Sabbath. And then he says this thing, I'm the Lord 
of the Sabbath, which basically means I get to make the rules on what it looks like to honor this day. And then they jump on going on from there. He went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So what they're trying to do is catch him doing or saying something that they can then use against him in the future. He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as it was, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So they're setting him up on purpose. They're trying to trap him. And what Jesus says, this is this example of what God is looking for is mercy, not sacrifice. The purpose of the Sabbath is rest, renewal, and restoration. What, uh, is there a better example of that than healing this guy's hand? Is there a better example of restoration than literally restoring a man's shriveled hand so that it's fully functioning again? You were allowed on the Sabbath to do work if it was saving someone's life. This guy's life was not in danger. Jesus just as easily could have waited a day. He could have healed him on Sunday instead of doing it on Saturday, but he didn't because he wanted them to know what God's looking for is not just letter of the law, obedience. He's looking for the spirit behind the law. That's what he's looking to see embodied. That's the Sermon on the Mount. If you can remember that back in the fall, we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. What what God is looking for is not just people who can follow the letters of the rules, but people who understand the heart behind it and are living that out. It's much more difficult to do that. That's why we push so much for you to be able to listen to God and hear God and be led by the Spirit because if you're following letters, you don't need God. All you need to do is be able to read and then you can follow the letter of the law. If you're following the Spirit of the law, then you need the lawgiver alive in your heart because he'll lead you through all of these different circumstances. And then what you see is an interpretation. This is Matthew speaking. If you believe the Bible's inspired, then these are, um, this is God's verdict on what is going on. Aware of this, this plot to kill him, Jesus is undermining their authority. He's undermining their understanding of the law. If you remember, we said the Pharisees didn't believe God was going to act until the law was sufficiently kept. They were, that's why they were so focused on people keeping the rules as they thought that's what was going to please God and cause him to come and rescue them. So they re- Jesus is not doing that, and he's leading other people astray from that, and so they decide the best thing to do is to figure out how to get rid of them. So aware of this plotting, Jesus withdrew from their place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was all to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. So here's God's verdict on who Jesus is and what he's doing. Here's my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. That's how God sees Jesus. That's how the Father saw the Son. That's what his understanding was on what Jesus was doing. The Pharisees saw things about as uh, opposite as you could, diametrically opposed. Their perspective, and we'll look at it next week, is that Jesus was in league with the devil. They say by the power of the devil, he's doing all of this work. God says, this is, he's my Messiah. He's the one I've sent to, to, to usher in my rule and my reign. He's the one that I've sent to make everything right. And when the Pharisees look at the exact same evidence, 
They hear the same sermons. They see the same healings. They see all of, and they look at the exact same thing. What they see is this guy's an instrument of the devil. He's not an instrument of God. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. He's not a righteous man. He's an instrument of the devil. He's a heretic. He's a blasphemer. And he needs to die. Our perspective determines our interpretation almost every time. Our perspective on who God is determines our interpretation of how he acts almost every time. For the Pharisees, their perspective on God is what he cares about the most is people following the letter of the law. God is a stickler for the rules. He's a technocrat. What he wants to know is, did you do everything right? And that's all he cares about. Therefore, Jesus must not be from God because he's breaking rules. If what God cares about most, that's my perspective, is keeping rules. So my interpretation of anyone who breaks the rules is therefore they are not sent from God. They're they're undermining his work. They're going against what I know to be true of him. And the same thing is true for each of us. I mentioned that quote a few weeks ago, that pastor and author, A.W. Tozier, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Your perspective on God will determine the way you interpret his activity in your life and in the world. We all have a caricature of who God is. We're finite. He's infinite. We, we don't come to him as blank slates. We've got education. We've got experience. We've got background. We've got all these different things kind of swirling in our hearts and in our minds. And oftentimes it's even subconscious. And we project all of that onto this, in this term, God. And then we kind of create this God in our minds. And that's who we relate to. Last week I mentioned how easy it is for us by default to kind of pull God down into our box versus allowing him to lift us up and see him and worship him for who he really is. It's just human nature. It's what we do. If you look throughout history, if you look at one of the reasons God said don't make an idol is he already knew what it was going to look like. It was going to look like us. That's what we do. When left to our own imaginations, we create God in our image. That's why he said don't make any images because I don't look like you. And it's not just that I don't physically look like you. I'm holy. I'm different than you are. There are points of commonality and points of connection. But I'm not just a superhero. I'm not you on steroids. I'm not you at your fullest potential. I'm different in a lot of ways. So don't even worry about making idols because they're not even going to be close to who I really am. But again, that's our temptation. None of us, I don't think, have a wood shop in the back and you're not making these little carving these things. And we don't do that. But when we pray, we go to the idol in our mind, the God that we've created. When we worship, we worship the God that we've created in our mind. The way we live our life, we're living it in view of this God that we've created in our mind. And what's so tricky is you can't see it. I'm wearing contacts. I can't. I don't know that I'm wearing contacts right now, but everything that I see, I see through those lenses. If they were tinted red, then all of you would look kind of pinkish. And I would think that's reality. Because it's all I can see. I can't not look through my contacts unless I take them out. And that's how all of us approach God. We all have these lenses. They're tinted, they're shaded, they're colored in some way, and they affect the way that we view them. And it is almost impossible for us to see them. 
Again, it's kind of this subconscious thing. There, it's like your contacts, you're wearing them, and you don't recognize that you are until somebody comes and pulls them out. Paul talks about the spirit of revelation, wisdom and revelation and us needing that, the Holy Spirit, so that we can know God more. That's kind of where I want to push a little bit as we close this morning is asking you, do you know what glasses you're wearing? The answer is probably you don't have a clue. We all think we're seeing things clearly because it's all we can see. My perspective is the only one I know, and so I assume that it's correct. Do you know what your caricatures of God are? Again, the answer is probably you don't have a great idea because, again, it's my perspective, and so I assume that it's correct. One of the things I can do is I can work backwards. I can look at my behavior and see what does that tell me about God. If I look at the way I'm living my life, what does that tell me about the God who I say I love and I serve? A couple of caricatures I thought of, this may not fit for any of you. One is kind of God as a smiter. Some of us see that. God is, that's him. He's waiting to drop the piano on you. The perspective is that God is mostly angry. If, when you think about God, you think about him mostly angry. He's got lightning bolts and he's just waiting to hurl them at people. If you feel that way, then whenever something bad happens in your life, your assumption is you're being punished. So that's how you see bad things. If you either don't get something that you want, or if you get things that you don't want, if things aren't working out, the assumption for you, the default, is I messed up and God is punishing me. That's God as a smiter, and it's just not true. God delights in us. Read Zephaniah 3. You, can, you might have to look that up in the table of contents. It's, it's in there. Zephaniah 3, 15 to 20. Read that. It's not a God who smites. It's a God who delights. He delights in you. He rejoices over you. He doesn't drop pianos on anybody. He doesn't do that. But some of you, and this is how you can know, do you live in anxiety? Do you live in a constant state or a regular state of fear, stress, and anxiety? If so, then you probably have some version of this. You might not think God's going to drop a piano on your head. But you think he's looking for an opportunity to punish you. And so you've got to make sure that you cross all your T's and dot all your I's. So nothing bad happens. God has a, I don't have any more pictures. God has an absentee parent. Very common for us. We know God is our father. We just think he's got a lot of kids. And so he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on us. We see God as distant in a lot of ways. He's disinterested in the details of our life. Therefore... I feel like he, he's not involved in the day-to-day, so I've got to make my own way. If that's you, if you tend to be someone who plows ahead, you tend to kind of do things on your own. You're, that picture David had, you're the man, you hold up the walls. You get your marching orders from God, and then you go out and execute them on your own. Then most likely you see God as an absentee parent. You don't see him how he's depicted in the Bible, as a loving father who has the hairs of your head numbered. You don't see him as someone who knows when two sparrows fall to the ground. You don't see him as someone who is intimately involved in the details of your life. If, um, we're doing this class called Fit. On Tuesday we talked about the difference between being a sailboat and a rowboat. A lot of us are rowboat Christians. God, you point me in the right direction and then I'm going to get there. That's an absentee father picture. He might set the rules, he might set the course, but it's up to me to get from point A to point B. If you're tired 
you may see God, that may be why. Because you're doing everything in your own strength. God is a scorekeeper or an accountant. I didn't want to say that because we actually have accountants here. I don't think we have any scorekeepers. God is a scorekeeper. He keeps meticulous records of everything that you do, right and wrong. And then we relate to him based on that resume. If that's you, if you feel like you're constantly balancing and and weighing and canceling out, well, I did something bad on Saturday, so I've got to come to church on Sunday to make up for it. That type of thing. There's this old uh, country song where the guy talks about throwing an extra $20 in the plate because of what he did on Saturday night. That scorekeeper mentality. This idea that that somehow balances with God. That if, if that's how you live, you're on a performance treadmill. And you're constantly, you're obsessed with your own activity. You're obsessed with your own actions. Because you're, you're, you have to make sure that the balance sheet stays good. At least slightly in your favor. It's not Christianity. It's actually Islam. You've got an angel on this shoulder and an angel on this one. And they're tracking the good and the bad stuff you do. And hopefully at the end you got more good than you got bad. The Bible says we serve a God, we love a God of grace and mercy. Grace giving us the good things that we don't deserve and mercy withholding from us the judgment that we do. This scorekeeping, it's basically karma is all it is. You reap what you sow, which is true, if God's not in the picture. Once God's in the picture, that law doesn't apply to us. We don't have to reap what we sow anymore. We sowed sin, Jesus reaped our punishment. He sowed righteousness and so we can reap his reward if we'll choose to remain in Christ. Some see God as a vending machine. That's the caricature. He's, this, he's like Santa Claus or your, your granddad or you know what he's looking. You just do things right. You get the right change, put it in the slot, you're going to get what you want. So you put in 50 cents and you hit Coke and you're going to get a Coke. And so then we become technique-based Christians. What we're trying to do is figure out what's the appropriate change. What is God looking for? In order for me to get the minivan, what do I need to do? In order for me to get whatever it is that we just asked for, what do I need to do in order for that to happen? How do I need to twist and bend and contort? It becomes technique-based Christianity. We forget God's a relational God. He's looking for hearts. He's not looking for people who just robots. He's looking for sons, not slaves. He wants to lead us and guide us by his spirit versus having us just follow a rule book apart from him. Those are some things. Think about the way you live in terms of your relationship with the Lord. What does it look like? If somebody were to look at you from, just observe you for a day or a week, what would they say about the God who you serve? Would they say, that guy's mean. I don't want anything to do with him. Based on what I'm seeing from you, he's not very trustworthy. Because you don't live like someone who trusts him at all. I see you making all kinds of contingency plans. I see you running around ragged and stressed. He must be a task master. As hard as you run, he must be hard to please. What would say, and that's not a guilt thing. It's really it's the only way we can see the contact lenses that we happen to be wearing. Look at You can see your behavior and then kind of extrapolate back. What does that behavior say? about the God that you're serving? And does it line up with the truth of who he is? Does it line up with what, are you serving this one who will proclaim justice to the nations? He doesn't quarrel or cry out 
No one hears his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He leads everyone to just to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. He's the lamb who was slain for our sins. He's the lion who overcomes everything that stands against us. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's the first and the last. He's the one who was and is and is to come. Is that the one who you're serving? This one who was willing to suffer and die for us. And this one who was resurrected as well. Who's overcome sin and Satan and death. This one who fulfills hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of everything God said I'm going to do. He came once on a, as a baby and he rode a donkey. And he's coming back on a white horse to make everything right. He heals and he saves and he restores and he reconciles. And he does all of those things from a place of grace and mercy and love. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would show us. I don't, I can't. Lord, I pray that you would hold a mirror up to our hearts in these next couple of minutes. That we would begin to see clearly the distortions. We all have them. None of us see you clearly. We can't. We're broken, we've, got, we've been burned, we've been hurt, we've gotten bad information, we haven't gotten good information, it's just, there's a, it's jumbled. And God, my prayer is that today we would each make a step to correct the distortions, that the, the image of who we have you to be in our mind would line up more and more with who you truly are. And that we would begin to to worship, to love, to serve, to relate to you based on reality and not just based on our perspective. So God, show us those of us who see you as angry, those of us who see you as a pushover, those of us who see you as distant, those of us who see you as a tooth fairy, those of us who see you as a principal, as a record keeper, there's little bits of truth in all of those, but we, they get distorted in our mind and we create this caricature of who you are. We thank you that you sent Jesus so that we could see who you are with skin on. And I pray that more and more we would relate to you again based on that reality. I just want to be quiet here for a second. Just ask the Lord to show you the lenses uh, that you're wearing. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to miss your activity in our midst because our perspective on you was wrong. We don't want to miss uh, what you want to do in our lives because our perspective of you is off. So God, uh, true us up, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with a worship song. We'll have ministry teams up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on in your life. Um, if you're struggling in this whole idea of overcoming, we'd love to just stand with you in that. If you know you've got, while well, we were quiet, you felt like God brought some conviction to your heart, some areas where your perspective on who He is is just not lining up with reality, we'll pray with you. 
about that, that God would uh, reveal the places where you're believing things that are not true and then would replace those things with the truth. So you guys can stand and Bo will dismiss us uh, after this song.